Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stone's Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to Vancouver, Canada. It's June 3rd, 1972, the opening night of the Rolling Stones tour of North America. Despite months of careful preparation, things are not going smoothly. As the Stones take the stage inside the Pacific Coliseum, the venue's besieged by more than 2,000 angry youths. They're just a small fraction of the unlucky majority unable to acquire highly sought-after tickets to this, the hottest show on the planet. Some have fallen victim to unscrupulous scalpers, turning up the venue only to discover that they'd shelled out for fakes. Regardless of circumstance, these rapacious rock fans intend to take the venue by force. They smash plate glass windows and fling rocks and bottles. One even tosses a Molotov cocktail. Seven policemen are taken down before the Mounties are dispatched to subdue the rioters. This is the Stones' first show on the continent since their disastrous gig at the Altamont Speedway in December 1969, which culminated in the stabbing death of a young fan. The last thing anyone wanted was more violence. And now their worst paranoias were coming true. For a time, most inside the hockey arena were blissfully unaware of the battle raging. This is especially true of those traveling as part of the Stones' inner sanctum, breathing the rarefied, though somewhat smoky air of the backstage. Brandishing their Stones' touring party laminates, guarded by a phalanx of security guards, and watching from the wings while the world's greatest rock and roll band performed for their pleasure just a few feet in front of them, trouble seemed miles away for these fortunate few. But then, trouble came knocking. Bang! A kid hits the back door of the arena with everything he's got. He bursts into the backstage area before getting punched and thrown back out. Bang! The door slammed shut. Wham! It opens again and two more kids try to fight their way in. Then it slams shut again and someone screams, Chain for the door! Chain for the door! No sooner do they padlock the doorway than 30 or 40 kids hit the roll-up corrugated metal door. The metal buckles and starts to fold, like an old fighter going down from a hard right to the gut. 
Bang, a bang, bang. The doors are being kicked rapidly in succession. The tattoo of boots against metal like small arms fire. It's like an authentic battle situation at some beleaguered outlying post. Those words come courtesy of Robert Greenfield, the legendary rock journalist who was Rolling Stone magazine's anointed Stones correspondent as a 20-something in the early 70s. He accompanied the band on their historic trek across the U.S. in the summer of 72, bringing tracks from their moody double-disc opus Exile on Main Street to the masses as the country threatened to come apart at the seams. Moreover, he's also a veteran of the backstage invasion in Vancouver. In addition to Greenfield and his never-before-heard tapes of the Stones in their 70s exile-era glory, We'll also be joined by his friend and fellow STP tourmate Gary Stromberg, the band's PR supremo who's represented a whole jukebox of the 20th century's greatest artists. Consider this show an all-access pass that takes you from the front row to backstage and from the private jets to the private after-show affairs. We're going on the road with the greatest rock and roll band in the world on the tour that showed us what it means to party like a rock star. Each episode will stop in a different city, taking in the sights, sounds, riots, bombings, drug busts, and other assorted mayhem from this pivotal moment in American history. My name's Jordan Runtog, and welcome to the Stones Touring Party. June 1972, showtime. At long last, the Stones were off to their first STP tour stop, Vancouver. A lovely town to be sure, but not exactly a music industry hotbed. You'd be forgiven for wondering why this, the largest tour in rock history, started in Canada's fourth largest city. Well, the short answer, its proximity to the LA tour headquarters made it just close enough, but also far enough away. You know, in case of emergencies or bad reviews. It all made perfect sense to Robert Greenfield. This is the brilliance of the Stones. You always go out of town. <laughs> the tryout is always in Hartford, Connecticut, before you go to Broadway. You don't open on Broadway. And what they always did with the opening show of every tour was play everything. We try this, we try that. I mean, at one point in the tour, they played Can't You Hear Me Knocking once. Didn't work. You know, they didn't play it again. And I don't have the set list in front of me. They played a couple songs that night that didn't come back in. But that's why they opened up there, because they wanted to get it right. Seattle also was like, okay, you know, we're still in protracted rehearsal. Once they got to San Francisco and were at Winterland, and then they knew they were coming to L.A., it's on. And then they were in the groove. Then they were just hitting it every night. The two-month trek was twice as long as their previous American tour in 1969, with an entourage that was also doubled. Together, they formed a well-oiled, ultra-professional machine, more akin to a military campaign than a rock and roll roadshow. The thing about the first day of the tour is it really wasn't a first day because there was so much pre-production. You know, like you were working on the film before the first show. And so I was living in L.A., but I definitely spent at least two weeks with the band as they were setting up what was coming. When they toured in England, you know, it was so informal, so relaxed. And then a year later, it becomes Sherman's March to the Sea. It's gotten so organized and fascist in its own way. 
It, you couldn't do what they did in England and America. It was unseasonably cool that foggy morning in L.A. when the Stones touring party, minus the actual Stones themselves, piled on the bus to the airport. It felt like the first day of summer camp, when you're thrown together with dozens of kids you've never met, knowing full well that in just a few days you'll be sharing life secrets with one another. It's peak experience time, with grown-ups getting to act like kids, all in the name of the Rolling Stones. But tour manager Peter Rudge saw it a little differently. To him, they were heading off to battle. The man described by Keith Richards as the four-star general among the anarchists burnt off his nervous energy by bouncing in and out of his seat and repeatedly declaring to one and all, we're about to hit the beaches, we're about to hit the beaches. To be sure, wearing an STP badge is to be part of a small army. And on second thought, it wasn't so small. The Stones' entourage had swelled to nearly 40 people, an unprecedented size for a rock tour. The supporting cast are minor players in the tour movie. Few know their names, and the audience never sees their faces. These are the people who would go through the cruelest and most drastic transformation on the tour, whooshed up from the relative normality of their everyday lives and into the eye of the rock hurricane. Close enough to the sixth center of it all to share in all the adulation and worship that gets directed at the Stones. And when it was all over, the comedown was harsh. But we'll get to that. For now, they were just getting elevated. A joint makes its way down the aisle of the bus and back up again. It reminds Robert Greenfield of the opening scene in a World War II drama where the light of the last cigarette is used to illuminate the faces and introduce the members of the platoon. There's the makeup man hired by Jagger eight hours before the tour bus was scheduled to leave. And there's the guitar maker, compulsively clad in a Stetson, caring for each of the 27 guitars along for the ride. And there's the accountant, who's not actually an accountant at all, but a 20-year-old rookie who, by the end of the tour, will have paid out some $192,000 in cash. There's the baggage guy, the doctor, and a few folks whose roles were a little more nebulous. And of course, there's also the Stones horn section, trumpet player Jim Price and saxman Bobby Keys, the latter of whom is mournfully studying the bag of pot he's just been advised to ditch before hitting the airport. The long, tall Texan was a party in human form. Here he is talking to Robert Greenfield in 1972, courtesy of our friends at the Northwestern University Archive. There's never been any organization on any tour that I've ever been on to compare it in any way The joints passed to a small man standing in the aisle of the bus, a video camera obscuring his face. In one smooth motion, the man takes the joint, hits it, puts it in front of the camera lens, films it, then passes it on. Though he's 47, easily the oldest person on the tour, 
He's just established his STP credentials by demonstrating the crucial ability to indulge and yet still function. This is Robert Frank. In photography and filmmaking circles, he's on par with Mick Jagger. The stark visual images of rural life in his landmark photo book, The Americans, made him a towering figure in the visual arts, as did his groundbreaking underground films like Pull My Daisy, which featured the likes of beat legends Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, and Gregory Corso. Mick himself hadn't actually seen these, but he hired Frank anyway as the official tour documentarian. The Swiss-born artist was also responsible for the cover art for the Exile on Main Street album, a haunting black-and-white photo collage that perfectly complemented the gritty Americana of the Stones' music. Who better to capture the sights of the Exile tour? Frank takes this photograph. It was on. It was in a barber shop, or it's a wall of photos that Frank saw on Main Street in L.A. Exile on Main Street, hello. That's where the title comes from. I mean, Mick is dealing, he's always going to other artists. He obviously had seen The Americans, the great book of Robert's photographs, you know. And so he puts that on the cover. It's such an unlikely cover, you know. The Stones gave Robert Frank carte blanche to shoot whatever he liked. A shocking act of trust, considering the documentary of their last tour, The Maisel's Brothers' Gimme Shelter, captured the murder at Altamont in graphic detail. If the Stones hoped this new doc would rehab their image after the horrors of Gimme Shelter, they would be sorely mistaken. Frank took a cinema verite approach, dispensing handheld Super 8s to assorted members of the STP crew to go off and shoot whatever they wished. In the end, this included, but wasn't limited to, a groupie shooting up, Jagger snorting coke, Mick Taylor smoking a joint, Keith nodding off, a likely staged orgy on an airplane, and televisions heaved from hotel windows. The final result was a hellishly hedonistic home movie. Utterly shot, sure, but more than the Stones had bargained for. In years to come, they would do everything they could to block its release. But on the tour, relations were great. This is all the more impressive considering Frank knew little about rock and roll and even less about the Stones. You know, it's incredible if you think about an artist of the stature of Robert Frank that many years ago. It's who this tour brought out of the woodwork. He would have probably been 50 then. He had a house in Nova Scotia. You know, he was tight with Philip Glass. He came from another world, man. The Bonds was there from the start. There was a good connection with, with Jagger. I mean, I could see that he would accept what I did because he respected me for what but I was, and I was surprised how quick he made up his mind that I should make a film. He'd never seen a film of mine, but he, I think he went much more by the personality, by the certain way I, I work. Well, of course, they are like a legend. They're like something dead that comes to perform, you know, descends from heaven to perform here and to disappear again. Besides the performance and traveling across the country, they were two very important things on that tour. One was dope and one was sex. But I felt there should be a way of showing it somewhere. The bus dumped the STP crew at a decidedly un-rock-and-roll transit terminal, populated largely with elderly women in floral blouses clutching their handbags and their husbands busy scouring the sports page for the Oakland A's score. 
But heads turned when the stones themselves arrived, like a great splash of watercolor on the dull and empty waiting room canvas. They were a vision in silk, corduroy, and studded blue jeans. Keith entered first in a black and white striped suit made out of a silvered sailcloth that must glow in the dark. Huge silver shades hit his eyes. Looped around his neck is a three-foot string of bright yellow Tibetan prayer flags. In his hand, he carries a small black doctor's bag containing his own private pharmacopoeia. Mick followed in a faded blue work shirt open to the waist and tight white pants. The middle-aged straights in the room were distracted enough to lower their papers and hiss to their wives. Good lord, Martha, do they look like that all the time? How in the hell, are they some sort of band? A decade into their career, the Stones still knew how to outrage with a mere entrance. Mick always was uh, Mr. Fish, you know, Chelsea, uh, you know, he always had the boots from Aniello and David and Brian Jones. They were so hip, Mick, not Keith. I mean, where Keith got his outfits, you know, I mean, he's Keith wearing, could care less. well, he was wearing a Tibetan scarf around his neck, that yellow schmata with the red writing on it. It hung in a window. He had an eye. He put together combinations of clothes that no one else would have ever thought of wearing it. Worked for Whereas him. Jagger had his own designers and Correct. submitting stuff. Correct. Yeah, it was all it. well thought out. Then. Everything was Costumes. made to order for Mick. Yeah. And Keith just was like going through the garbage bin looking for something to wear. Mick and Keith were flanked by their two imposing security chiefs, Stan the Man Moore and Big Leroy Leonard. Word on the street was the Hells Angels had a hit out on the Stones, specifically Mick, revenge for the murderous outcome at Altamont during their last tour. This was the era of assassinations, with the deaths of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy still fresh in the popular consciousness. As a result, these threats on the stones, though little more than rumor, were taken very seriously. Over the next two months, Stan and Leroy would be the stones' constant shadow, scoping out the concert venues, staying in the suites next door, and even sitting with them on stage, just out of the spotlight. Leroy was a foreboding, forbidding, large man who was a cop, and he was more the muscle, and Stan, who had been an officer, a lieutenant detective. Yeah, these guys were really good. They were very quiet, but you just knew that you're not going to fuck with anybody that that they're guarding. They were carrying. They were both armed, and Stan would always show the cops, you know, I'm a cop, and the hotel security, like, I'm in charge. I'm a cop. The constant supervision may have been in their best interest, but it made Keith uncomfortable. I always feel it's unnecessary to have a bodyguard walking right next to me, you know. I always feel a bit stupid about it, but I understand that I'll put up with it because other people that have been involved longer in setting the tour up feel it's necessary. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that it maybe it is, you know, because it's really not my job to say whether it's necessary or not. You know, I can say I don't like it, but I don't want to fight them about, about the security thing because they've been working on the tour for months, you know, and they, they've heard about the, what the angels threatened to do and this, that and the other, you know, so they probably thought it was necessary. With the exception of drummer Charlie Watts' wife Shirley, none of the band's significant others were invited on the trek. You could argue this was due to safety concerns, or just garden variety sexism. Mick's wife Bianca wasn't happy about this, but at least she was afforded one small revenge. 
The couple had a habit of sharing clothes, and Mick had borrowed a scarf of hers without her knowledge to take with him on the road. When Bianca discovered this, she demanded it back, forcing him to rummage through each and every one of his packed suitcases until he found it. I find it very difficult to travel with anyone on tour. I mean, Bianca's much easier than some people. Uh, but uh, it's very, I mean, I, I'm just completely alone when it comes to being on tour. You know, I, you know, it's nice to see, you know, your old lady and everything occasionally, which is all that I did see. But I just have to be on my own, you know. So far, things were going great. And then suddenly they weren't. You could sense something was amiss as the STP tour management squad gathered like storm clouds on a sunny horizon, all whispers and scowls. The Stones were due in Vancouver in a matter of hours to perform their tour kickoff for 18,000 fans. But now, they had no way to get there. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. 
basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Rolling Stones hadn't even made it out of L.A. when their tour hit a major stumbling block. Their charter jet, obtained at great expense and due to take off in mere minutes, has been denied permission to land in Vancouver for that night's concert. This substantial problem immediately sent the STP tactical squad into DEFCON 5. Tour manager Peter Rudge, who bore the awesome weight of the whole venture on his increasingly tense and sweaty shoulders, circled the wagons with associates Joe Bergman and Alan Dunn for an emergency conference. What could possibly be the problem? The front page of the day's newspapers bore lurid details of not one but two separate skyjackings that had occurred the night before. Did that have something to do with it? The real answer was more mundane. The Stones' touring party, despite all their planning, had forgotten to file a flight plan early enough to receive international clearance. It's a rookie move for those dealing with private air travel, but the consequences were big. While the rest of the touring party mills around in blissful ignorance, the STP tax squad swarms a bank of payphones, jams the receivers in their ears, and starts punching keys. After many minutes of moving mouths and furrowed brows fail to solve the problem, Marshall Chess, president of the Rolling Stones record company and wheeler-dealer extraordinaire, decides to take a different approach. While the others piss around with travel bureaus and aeronautical boards, he aims straight for the top. Yes, operator, give me Ottawa, Pierre Trudeau. The prime minister, yes. And my credit card number is... Apparently all it takes is some rock and roll chutzpah and a major credit card to talk to a national leader of your choice. Hello, this is Marshall Chess of the Rolling Stones. We have a concert scheduled for tonight in Vancouver. 18,000 people are waiting for us and our plane has been denied permission to land in Canada. If we don't show up, those kids are going to be aroused. Unfortunately, the Prime Minister's hands are tied, so the crew begin hatching alternate schemes. Ultimately, they decide to land at a small airport in suburban Washington, and then shuttle everyone over the border in limos. On one hand, it beats walking, but the downside of this plan means the Stones and co. have to pass through normal, everyday roadside customs, a prospect that doesn't make Peter Rudge very happy. So they make their way to the rented plane, a Lockheed Electra customized with a lapping tongue emblazoned on the side, a cultural mashup of Mick Jagger and the Hindi goddess Kylie. The Stones first used the symbol for their 1970 European tour before adopting it as the band's permanent logo, a rebellious answer to the McDonald's arches or the Pepsi swirl. A cynic might say this signaled the professionalization and corporatization of rock. The private jet also did a pretty good job of this. But according to Robert Greenfield, everyone was having far too much fun bawling out to care about the implications. The fun was being on a plane because everybody was relaxed on the plane. And everybody, mm. in my memory, the map was at the back of the plane. It was a map of where they were going. <laughs> like World War II, when you'd fo follow, I didn't do this, but you know, you, the pins where the allies were. And so <laughs> I think they would track and put a pin in every city. And, you know, like Keith admitted, they would be standing up a lot, on, which was shocking. 
I've never flown on a private. Well, let's let's be honest here. It wasn't a small jet. You know, I, you didn't have to sit down. That was shocking. You could walk around and people would be drinking. And you didn't need seatbelts. <laughs> <laughs> and smoking, I don't. I don't Smoke, remember any yeah. doping. I'm sure dope was smoked on the plane, but uh, I'm, and there were two stewardess for this whole tour, same crew, and we get to the plane like one a.m. Right at night, you didn't want to stay in that city, you know. And again, we get whenever we arrive, the black limos are waiting, so it doesn't matter, man. Tour manager Peter Rudge had planned everything with military precision to accommodate the massive entourage. Aside from the flight plan snafu, the efficiency was unlike anything that the Stones were used to on the road. Even Keith Richards had to marvel. When there's so many people, it's, you've got to be organized. If you're only carrying a band and a couple of people, it doesn't matter if it isn't organized. You, know, you can make your own plans every day and change them. You know. The jet didn't even land where other jets, and the limos were right on the tarmac. You came down the steps. There are great Annie photographs of people coming down those steps into the limo. For reasons related both to safety, luxury, and P.T. Barnum-level showmanship, Rudge took great pains to ensure that the band engaged with the outside world as little as possible. This strategy was even baked into the structure of their concerts. The interesting thing about the Stones not taking encores is here's the brilliance of Peter Rudge. Backstage at every venue was parked a camper. And I can't describe that in current terms. This is like 1972, a box-like trailer camper that even your grandparents wouldn't take to Yosemite. <laughs> like so nondescript, perfect, like CIA, you know, like this is where all the stuff is. And when the Stones had finished playing Rip Disjoint or Bye Bye Johnny, whatever was the final number, they would run directly off stage, go get into the camper because Rudge is genius. You put him in limos, girls will be, you know, spread eagle. You see that shot from inside the limo. The girl is screaming and then she rolls off the limo as they accelerate. Well, you're just telling everybody, hey, Stones, they're right here. Mob, mob. The no. So the crowd is still screaming. They're standing on their feet. We don't leave yet because we're not them. They're in this camper and they're out of there before before the house lights are up or before the crowd even knows they have to go home. And they're out. They're gone. They're back at the hotel. We were so insular. You have to be all in. And Gary was. And so was I. You don't do anything else but where are we going? How are you? What's happening now? Hey, great. What's going on? There's no other reality. They moved like a pirate nation, doing whatever they wanted, complete with lawyers and attendants. One of the few times the Torah bubble was punctured was when they passed through customs into the Great White North. This was cause for no small amount of anxiety because, simply put, the gang was holding. Big time. A bust would ensure that the tour was basically over before it had started. But Mick and Keith giggled like school kids as they entered the customs hut, thoroughly freaking out the man behind the desk who'd never seen people look or act like this, these visions in silk and velvet and ruffles. Keith even hams it up, leaning oh-so-casually next to a poster reading, Patience, please. A drug-free America comes first. They're cooperative, but smirking and defiant, as if to say, we're playing your little game here, but it doesn't really apply to us. Even before the law, the stones are laws unto themselves. We couldn't get into Canada. 
We had to land in Bellingham, Washington to go through customs. And we all sat in this tiny airport, and then we got in limos, and they drove us across the border. That's where the great photograph that Ethan Russell took, you know, patience, please, a drug-free America, and it's up to you. I said, Ethan, look at Keith. He's, Keith was posing. I love him. He knew it. He knew how brilliant the juxtaposition was. Last we checked in with Keith, he was fresh off a detox in Switzerland immediately prior to the tour rehearsals. Being hooked on heroin is less than ideal for a cross-country tour, especially in America in 1972, where sympathies for the devil of drug addiction were non-existent. In his 2010 memoir, Life, he wrote about the disarmingly practical anxieties he faced each day in the depths of his struggles. One day you wake up and there's been a change of plans. You gotta go somewhere unexpected. And you realize the first thing you think about is, okay, how do I handle the dope? The first thing on your list isn't your underwear or your guitar, it's how do I hook up? Do I carry it with me and tempt fate? Or do I have phone numbers where I'm going, where I know that it's definitely there? With a tour coming up, it was the first time it really hit me. I didn't want to be stuck in the middle of nowhere with no stuff. That was the biggest fear. I'd rather clean up before I went on the road. This meant going through the dreaded withdrawal, an experience Keith compared to being only marginally better than having your leg blown off or starving to death. As he writes, the whole body just sort of turns itself inside out and rejects itself for three days. It's gonna be the longest three days you've spent in your life. And you wonder why you're doing this to yourself when you could be living a perfectly normal, rich rock star life. And there you are, puking and climbing the walls, your skin crawling, your gut's churning, and you can't stop your limbs from jerking and moving about, and you're throwing up and shitting at the same time. But even that doesn't stop a reasonable man from going back on the dope. And on the STP tour, he did. You, you were healthy when you came from Switzerland to LA, right? Yeah. Healthier than you've been for a long time. I was not been for a year. I mean, how quick does that go? You know? What the hell? Yeah. Well, my health stands up. I mean, it never actually breaks down. You, I mean, you see, for people that are going up on that stage every night and sweating it out, they can take a lot more of that shit. First of all, because they're getting that constant exercise every night and sweating it out, and they're pushing themselves to that limit, and their expectations are pushing themselves to that limit. But for people that aren't doing that and just hanging around and getting stoned and just, you know, watching the show and getting stoned, that's another thing because you haven't got any point of release. This seems to go on and on, you know, without there being a high point to the day, you know. Mick and Keith breathed easy in large part because of the presence of their own private physician, whose protected status as a medical professional made him the ideal bagman in tricky legal situations. He's a crucial character amid the STP cast, but he's also a shady one. No name. No name. No name. No name. Yeah. You're intentionally no name? Is yeah, oh, yeah, no. we're not naming okay. the doctor. Okay. <laughs> Can I give his first name? No. Not even the first no. name? No. Dr. L? No. Dr. <laughs> we're going to call him Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> oh, okay. Dr. Feelgood. Dr. Feelgood. That's how we got away with this stuff, too, because the doctor would hold the drugs, and doctors were not searched, didn't they? Ah, uh. So they wouldn't search a doctor's, he has a little black, black medicine bag. The not-so-good doctor's role was rooted in responsibility, at least initially. 
Mick wanted a physician on hand, in case everyone's worst nightmares came true and the Hells Angels took a shot at him. Technically, emergency medicine was Dr. Feelgood's specialty, but his real specialty was having a good time, and making sure everyone else did, too. He may have graduated from Yale, but his most important credential was his rumored license to import cocaine from Merrick Labs in Switzerland, the Wagyu of white powder. On the off chance that he didn't have something in the mobile pharmacy of his briefcase, he could simply write a prescription for it at any time in any city. Once medication had been properly administered to one and all, the doctor spent much of the concert scouting the audience for women who struck his fancy. To each of these lucky ladies, he handed a business card on which was printed his name and the rather lofty title, Physician to the Rolling Stones. On the back, he would write the name of their hotel and the suite number to call, which meant that his personal after-party was all sorted. Many would help themselves to his medicine bag when he was otherwise indisposed. There were some who resented the doctor for being just a bit too blatant when taking advantage of his place in the STP chain of command. Keith Richards was not one of those people. Bug anybody, he didn't keep anybody waiting, and uh, without him, there would have been uh, a few moments where it would have been a drag, you know. I mean, he was thrown in the deep end like a lot of other people, you know. He really was. Just because those people knew what to expect and knew what was going on and had been on previous tours, I don't see that it's necessarily the reason to badmouth somebody that has never done it before and has no idea of what to expect and gets carried away. I don't really think it's his fault that he got crazy. He still kept us full of vitamins and salt pills and things, which nobody else would have thought of if he right. hadn't been there, which so, so you were is a lot more important than, than people realise. Because you were work, walking at the parties with his, with his bag. Yeah, he that. was very liberal with his bag, which I thought was very nice of him. I don't hold that against him at all. I think that a lot of people think that he used his position. But to get what? You to know. get laid, probably. Good luck to him. But there's one point, one night, I think it's in the STP. It's a book I wrote, you know, in case you don't know. Available uh, at Amazon. <laughs> no, I'm not selling, man. It's okay. <laughs> don't have to buy it. Um, Keith, Keith, like, browsing through the doctor's back. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah, because he knew more about, he knew the PDR, pharmaceutical director. He knew, Keith knew everything. He was looking for what, what the special was yeah. that night. You know, what do I feel like having, you know, so. Casually taking all the time in the world, you know, very interested, taking out, you know, syringes and packets and ampules. And, like. and that's what we went from Canada to the U.S. with Doc holding the, the, all the goods so that customs never even found anything. So in the end, they got into Canada just fine. But they found a fight waiting for them when they got there. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. 
There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We might as well go to the great moment, the opening night, right? We're in Vancouver and Peter Rudge, who went to Cambridge. Brilliant human being, you know, mad, driven. He was obsessed with security and Jagger's personal safety and the safety of the concert. So the greatness of planning as opposed to touring is that shit happens, you know, it absolutely does. Stone's tour manager Peter Rudge hadn't had a good night's sleep in months as he did his best to plan for every conceivable crisis on the road. Perhaps more than anyone else, he deserved an easy opening night. Unfortunately, he wasn't going to get it. The reason was, in essence, capitalism. Tickets to see the Rolling Stones on the 1972 tour cost between six and seven US dollars. A steal today. Indeed, it was a good deal then, but this was the age of utopian hippie communalism. Woodstock had been free, although that was purely because the organizers hadn't been able to get the fences up on time. Altamont was also free, but, well, let's not talk about that. Hippies began to feel entitled to free concerts, and that just wasn't in the cards for the Rolling Stones, who, you'll remember, were still struggling to rebuild their bank balance after years of financial mismanagement. Tours were supposed to be a big moneymaker for bands, but it seldom worked out that way for the Stones. 
Sometimes this was, as bassist Bill Wyman points out, purely for practical reasons. Here he is talking to Robert Greenfield in 1972, courtesy of our friends at the Northwestern University Archives. But as I say on tours, it's, it's the, the huge overhead of taking the stage around, the crew, lights, transportation, before even you consider the hotel bills, things, you know. We got such a huge production on these. The first two Australian tours, we lost money. The only place we make money is England because of the traveling expenses are low. We don't make much because the places are small. And um, America. For Keith Richards, it was less an issue of logistical costs and more a problem of poor impulse control. Just the fact that you're on the road. For a start, you're not in the best head to uh, work out whether you should be blowing a bread on that or not. You know, you just say, yeah, I want you know, that guitar, and I want that guitar, and I want that guitar. This was part of the reason why Bill Wyman's cut for the band's recent tour of Europe was less than one might expect. We did that European tour in the spring of 70. I came out of it with three Persian carpets. That was my money. That's God's truth, man. The total thing that is the total truth. money I made on on four weeks because of the the overheads we pay. Did everybody in the band get that same amount of money? Yeah, I don't think they made five. I think I got a little bit more than I should have. But that is it. No cash. Mick, meanwhile, was too cool to admit to something as bourgeois as money worries. But he also didn't make out well on the European tour. I'm not saying we didn't make any money, we didn't make very much. I ain't worried. I made a thousand dollars. No one believes me. I mean, they all think like I made a million dollars. Then we got called rip-offs and that we were charging too much at the door, and like, we made a thousand bucks each. The band's year as tax exiles in France had done little to refill their collective coffers, which is why the primary objective of the STP tour was to be as professional and profitable as possible, hence why the tickets weren't free. This didn't sit well with many of the youths of Vancouver. This was the era when the word rip-off was just coming into vogue as the most vicious insult to a band's integrity. So thousands of ticketless Stones fans descended on the Pacific Coliseum Hockey Arena to make their displeasure known. Earlier, Rolling Stones records chief Marshall Chess had tried to prove his street cred by distributing his limited stack of comps to a group of kids waiting outside. He was instantly mobbed. They tore at his hair and eyes until a cop had to dive into the spinning, brawling whirlpool of long hairs and wrestle him out. Marshall then simply flung the pile of tickets into the air and made a run for it, as the kids threw elbows, like peasants scraping for the last few crusts of bread. Marshall's giveaway may have been well-intentioned, but it had the effect of blood in shark-infested waters. As the show began, all of tour manager Peter Rudge's paranoias came true. Robert Greenfield was one of those who found himself on the front line of an invasion. I'm backstage minding my own business. I'm not doing anything. Stevie Wonder's on, and the arena, because I've been outside already, I've come in, is surrounded by, and that's Canada. You know, they all have maple leaves on their underwear. You know, like, I don't know what they're upset about, but there are, I don't know what to call them. What do you call them? Malcontents? The music should be free. They don't have tickets. Every show, couple hundred, maybe more. They're milling about. <laughs> you know. And you know. Listen, I've been to the demonstrations. I was at Columbia when it blew up. I've seen stuff, and this stuff is roiling and going on. And then, you know, fine. They're outside, and we're inside. All of a sudden, 
You know those big corrugated metal doors, loading doors, like in a loading dock, which is the day you load in and backstage. I'm like the closest guy to it. Rudge is standing far away and close. So they have broken the lock. They must have had crowbars. The door flies up. Okay, it's like a bad movie. And here are these raging, raging youth, man. Okay, and they start charging. And they're going to overrun the show. They're going to come in the backstage. They're going to set fire. Whatever fantasy you have, your worst nightmare. And so I jump on the door, okay, the inside of the door. I'm holding the door, trying to, and all of a sudden, Rudge is next to me, and he's hanging on the effing door, and he's screaming, we're blind here, we're blind, we need help, man. So we're, eventually, I mean, it's just absurd. It's like a circus scene. There's like five of us all hanging on this it's like tug of war they're trying to push it up we're trying to pull it down okay i finally we get it down and god knows what happened they padlock it and and rudge comes off the door the only one i ever saw on the whole tour a legitimate total meltdown like He's been planning the, how could this happen, right? Screaming, I mean, it was nobody's fault. But after that, the ante was upped. What's interesting, I think, is the juxtaposition of what you're just describing now of all these events and the chaos that is occurring at the back end of this tour contrasted with beginning of the tour with Rudge laying out the game plan and how everything is going to be planned and coordinated. It's all under control. Here's what we're going to do. And step by step, he's got to, and then, it's not only goes out of control, but so does Rudge as it moves along. Rudge became more and more frantic and out of control, I think, as we went along, especially the latter parts of the tour, as I recall. Kids were always going to be out of control at rock concerts. That much was a given. But the cops could be worse. The following night, in a gig in Seattle, Robert Greenfield witnesses police using handcuffs to hogtie a young black teen who seems to have had one too many. As soon as he's out of sight of the general public, he's dragged face down more than 150 feet across the asphalt parking lot. Then, in the shadow of a police van, the cops give him the works, beating him with feet, fists, and knees. According to Stone's bassist Bill Wyman, it was an all-too-common sight. There's always 30 bouncers that beat up kids for nothing. Always beat up the wrong one. There was a lot of it on this tour, I know. Two guys? Minneapolis? Yeah. And, and like hauling kids out just because they were being pushed forward from the back and because they were the one in front, they would be hauled off. And because they were hauled off, all the cops in the line that were taking them out would think they'd done something, so they'd all give them a bang, you know. And then they'd get beaten up at the outside, which is terrible. In retrospect, the tour was really run, it was life during wartime, right? There was enough with the, with, with the kids outside, angry, violent. Uh, I remember most pointedly Vancouver and Seattle. It's interesting that there were selected cities where people, kids took this personally, that they couldn't get in and wanted a break in. But it, it, it's a constant theme, you know? Mick who'd long since abandoned his pose as a street-fighting man in the wake of the global riots of 1968, was less sympathetic to the plight of unruly kids, who seemingly would stop at nothing to experience his band, live and in person. 
You know that if you throw stones and smash windows in, in some coliseum, fucking in that wherever, the police are going to chase you. I mean, that's the idea of it. You know, that's why you do it in the first place. You know what I mean? You know you may not get in. And, you know, you know for certain that your cops are going to chase you. There was a lot of problems backstage, but in the halls generally there wasn't really that many problems considering. I don't think there were. I mean, that. that I'm sure that people will say, oh, yeah, I got my head smashed in by a cop. In. I'm sure it happens, you know? It did happen. I don't know if Stone's concerts are really that worse than anyone else's in that aspect. Admittedly, Mick had other things on his mind besides the tense relationship between cops and fans. Despite all the technical assistance, all the innovation in stage technique, and all the rehearsing, not to mention the dozens of people on hand whose primary objective was to make this the greatest rock and roll production in the world, Mick still faced the primal fear that they'd hit the stage and nothing would happen. The audience would just sit there, stone still like an old class photo. Despite the overwhelming ticket demand and the avalanche of media interest, they were going on the road with basically the same kind of show they'd done three years earlier in 1969. How would the kids react to it? The Stones were about to be 30 or older, and their audiences would be 14, 15, 16, some younger. Would they dance? Did they know who Chuck Berry was? By the summer of 72, glam was the new game in town. Lead singers were working half-naked with snakes twined around their midriffs and their hair dyed burnt sienna, flaunting their omnisexuality as helicopters dive-bombed their audience with skyloads of paper panties. The Stones played it straight, second-generation English rock with no frills. There was something almost punky about the sparseness of their presentation. Fifteen songs in an hour and a half. Mick couldn't help but wonder, would this be enough? This question weighed heavily on the band, sequestered in their dressing room just before showtime. They burned through their nervous energy in their own unique ways. Keith would tune and twang his guitar, Charlie would sit Buddha still and twirl his sticks, and Mick jackknived through ballet poses. Jagger would be so nervous. Mick got stage fright. He would be beside himself. You didn't talk to him. He usually wouldn't come out. He'd be the last one out, but he, they'd be inside the, there were two dressing rooms. There'd be the outside dressing room, then there'd be the musicians where they would play together before the show. You didn't go in there because they were all sitting and playing. Keith, I had, don't think, Keith could have walked in off the street, direct to the stage and picked up the guitar and started playing. Right before every show, Jagger would seclude himself, usually just right alongside the stage, where he would then take as much cocaine as he could possibly take in that brief moment. It was like the band was performing the intro or Chipmunk was making the announcement, the intro. And just before he would hit the stage, he would snort the biggest line of coke that he could possibly get up his nose and then jump onto the stage so that that rush, that cocaine rush was coming on as he was getting onto the stage. I remember really admiring him for the, the ability to do that. And to, like, not have anybody around. He could always, like, isolate himself away from because he had handlers and people that were around him, you know, always. And, and right before he'd go on, he'd just go off by himself and just do a blast and then hit that stage, boy. It was just an explosion. He would explode onto that stage. And I was, I mean, it was great to see the energy that he had to, you know, to open a show with. It was mesmerizing. Finally, it's time. Months of work and millions of dollars have led to this moment. 
17,000 people wait in the pitch blackness as stage manager Chip Monk, the famous voice of Woodstock, delivers the introduction. In an age of breathless rock and roll hype men, it's elegantly understated. Like announcing royalty, adjectives are superfluous. Ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones. It was dark and, and chip, ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones and the, the downbeat of brown sugar. And then Jagger explodes onto the stage and in a spotlight and the place would go insane. It was pretty theatrical. And Jagger was high. Very. And he was wearing the white jumpsuit and sparkling. And spinning like a top. Pretty good. That yeah, was good. Pretty good. Yeah. For low tech. No yeah. screens. No pyrotechnics. Yeah, there was none of the frills. It was Jagger. He strides across the double serpents painted on the stage, singing amid the flicker of their tongues. Illuminated by shafts of heavenly white light from the eight Super Trooper spotlights, Mick looks both very real and surreal. He's one of Rock's greatest dramatists, teasing the audience with a blend of alluringly effete seduction and hyper-masculine bravado. As a young performer, his hero had been Little Richard, the androgynous, outrageous, piano-punishing rock pioneer who commanded rooms with an unholy wail and truly killer eyeshadow. Soon after joining the Stones in 1962, Mick was nearly fired because his endearing enthusiasm couldn't mask his crippling lack of skill. But now, a decade later, the skills are on full display. He's created the template for generations of frontmen. Terry Southern, one of the famed writers covering the tour, described Mick as possessing the most dramatic qualities of James Brown, Rudolf Nureyev, and Marcel Marceau. Robert Greenfield is a similar assessment. A couple things about Mick. Absolutely the greatest onstage performer that anyone had ever seen. If you've seen Charlie is My Darling, uh, Mick goes to America, come back, he's dancing like James Brown. He's doing the exact James Brown move, man. I saw it every night at the Apollo when I was there. He's doing that, like, sideways pony that that, <laughs> that James did and the Ronettes could do. And he's, he's a great mimetic. He, he's a mime. He can do other people. And if you look, and you can see the photographs, he's already well aware of David Bowie. America isn't, you know. Uh, I think he's made hunky-dory, but uh, he's known in London, and Mick knows him. Mick always has an eye for the competition. He's always looking sideways and backwards. So who's coming after me? And so on that tour, Mick is wearing, I don't know what to call it, you know, the revealing jumpsuit, you know, the white, showing a lot of cleavage, you know. Mick wore a selection of velour jumpsuits on the STP tour, crafted by designer Ozzy Clark. Frequently left open to his navel, the stage uniform was skin tight. The audience would be shocked to learn that he was, in fact, wearing underwear underneath. He's working the unisex, unisex leotard. And I've said this before to other people. I'm just a bozo on the bus. I'm just on tour. I'm writing down what I see. We get to Minneapolis. And I see all these 17-year-old Scandinavian blonde guys wearing dresses. And I think, oh, 
there's something going on here. Like, dude, we're in Minnesota. It can be hip, not running down Minnesota. But I was blown away. It wasn't New York. It wasn't the Lower East Side. It wasn't CBGB's. And yet, Jagger has already anticipated. That's a big change in rock and roll. Boys looking like girls. Yeah? And Jagger's doing it. He's doing it on that tour. He had his own makeup artist on the tour who there are great photographs that Annie's taken. Bianca watching as Steve Gokey makes Jagger look movie star-esque, yeah, like uh, glittery. Uh, I would venture to say that no other rock band ever toured with a makeup artist before this. Kiss, no, they weren't out yet. I mean, Jagger's like so far ahead in terms of theater, cinema, production. He sees the bigger picture. And that androgynous look, too, well, that came more naturally to him. And Bowie and, and Mark Boland. Yeah, this is happening in England, but not so much in America yet. And, and I don't think people were conscious of it during the tour because the music was so good. But he's affecting, that's what's incredible. You know, he's affecting the way people look. At each concert, Mick insisted that the first batch of rows were filled with everyday fans rather than VIPs or photographers. This was partially to ensure that John and Jane Q. Public got a good look at his still slender physique, maintained through his new daily jogging regimen. But more importantly, he wanted to make eye contact with his audience. He fed off their energy and their responses, or sometimes lack thereof. So the genius of Mick, still, but back then so sensitive to the house. I saw it in small arenas in England on the English tour. You know, they played before 800 people, two shows a night. Uh, Jagger could see 25 rows back. And if he saw somebody who wasn't up, he'd work to get that person up. I mean, he was a genius, and he would do different things on stage every night. It wasn't always the same stuff. But, you know, physically a performer, when they would do Midnight Rambler, he was acting out psychodrama. Off their 1969 album, Let It Bleed, Midnight Rambler was the showpiece of their STP tour set, as Mick went into full-body theatrics, reaching for his black rhinestone-studded belt to whip the stage. The punishing physicality would overwhelm lesser frontmen. Even Mick admitted that it could sometimes be difficult to transform himself from that nervous guy in the dressing room to a superhuman singing shaman on command. Well, yeah, you don't always feel like it, but that's all right, because after a while, it's all right, you can do it, and... And when you get up there, you really don't have to fake it anymore. The time you get on stage, you feel like, all right, you know, because if you can't, if you can't get up by that, then you ain't going to get up by anything. So you might as well forget it and stop living, you know. They are performers. And once you hit the stage, the energy comes to you off the house. And Keith always talked about this, and so did Mick that you are interactive with the crowd and they push you they make you also you take everything personally i mean if you're not up if i haven't gotten you out of your seat like why aren't you dancing and that's the way the stones always were i mean i saw shows in england where they were pissed off and they played harder and they got people to react in america the reaction was there because it's group think like every you know you've seen it all of a sudden why is everybody standing now when you go like dude nothing happened yet well everybody's up you know they didn't have to work to get people up but i think it it goes back and forth that's the difference you know and that becomes the real addiction you know the rush 
of being on stage, it's bigger than any drug for if this is what you do for your living. That's your joy and your, you know, and you're a musician. I mean, this is the point to be made is they played their asses off every night. And we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the human riff, Keith Richards. There aren't that many guys who are as, you have to have a right hand to be a rhythm guy. And you have to understand that music in a deeper part of yourself that you can play that without having to think about it. You just feel it. And then playing leads are a whole different issue, but he could do both and did. Mick Taylor came in, so Mick was handling the leads, some, but on the real songs, the old songs, that was Keith. He's playing Satisfaction. That's his riff, you know, he invented it. For guitarist Mick Taylor, still considered the new guy after joining three years earlier, the STP tour marked the point where the band truly started to coalesce as one musical unit. Yeah, it's more enjoyable on stage. On the 69 tour, it was literally a new band, you know. None of us had played together. We were all a bit sort of timid and we were feeling our way. Whereas on the recent tour, everybody was much looser and more up front, you know. Once you get up on stage and start playing, you know, that's why you're doing it, really. It all leads up to that moment when you're actually going up on stage to play before an audience. Back then, no backup singers, correct? Think about this. 1972 tour, Keith singing harmony. Nobody else. Jim Price playing trumpet. Bobby Keys playing saxophone. The music you heard was Charlie, Bill Wyman, Keith, and Mick. Mick and Mick Taylor. And Nicky Hopkins, too, we forgot. The great Nicky Hopkins. Ian, uh, well, Ian Stewart would be playing the blues stuff and honky-tonk women. And then Nicky would take over for the complicated stuff. And Stu, who was an incredible phrase maker... Uh, he called a lot of what Nicky played diamond tiaras. <laughs> and he had a Scottish accent, you know. Now, Nicky was, uh, to my mind, the greatest piano player in rock and roll. Astonishing musician, yeah. And they're killing it. I mean, and they're playing 18,000-seat arenas, and the acoustic set, the house would be dead silent. You could hear every note. They're sitting there playing these three lovely guitars. Pretty intense, you know. While ostensibly promoting Exile on Main Street, their setlist was a mutt of material. They opened with two titles from their previous album, Sticky Fingers, Brown Sugar, and Bitch, giving those tracks their American debut with an unbeatable one-two punch. Tracks from their 1969 album, Let It Bleed, got a workout, and they also stacked the setlist with instant standards like Jumpin' Jack Flash, You Can't Always Get What You Want, and Gimme Shelter. If you look at the setlist, from the tour, they did two or three songs from Exile uh, on stage. And, and the point, the reason that was legitimate was they had never toured behind Sticky Fingers in America. So America deserved to hear Bitch and Brown Sugar and the greatness that was in the Sticky Fingers. Here's the set list. What do you got, Gary? Tell me. Brown Sugar, Bitch, Rocks Off, Gimme Shelter, Happy. Tumbling Dice, Love in Vain, Sweet Virginia, You Can't Always Get What You Want, Down the Line, Midnight Rambler, Bye Bye Johnny, Rip This Joint, and Jumping Jack Flash. The honky tonk women always got people up dancing. It was irresistible. And so, listen, part of rock is the brilliance of your set, construction-wise. You have to go up, you have to go down, and them doing the acoustic thing in the middle, calm the house down. 
then you bring them up slightly, and then when you three songs from the end, you go to the next level, so that they're screaming for you to come back. Yeah. They come were up. masters at that. Yeah. yeah, they knew how to do that. Yeah, it, they manipulate the crowd. Yeah, it killed. It killed coming out of the box. The band barreled on like a runaway train, playing faster and fiercer than ever before. After the acoustic interlude, it was all rock, all the time. Keith ripped through a cover of Bye Bye Johnny like a long-lost cousin of Chuck Berry. Onward, faster and harder, with All Down the Line, Rip This Joint, and Jumpin' Jack Flash. It all builds the street fighting man as Chipmunk's rig works his magic, dissolving the stage into a shower of light and rose petals. With that, the stones vanish in a haze of feedback. They weren't awful. They didn't dog it, you know? It wasn't like, Jack, oh, yeah, I saw Mick, he couldn't sing. That's why they're the quote-unquote greatest rock band in the world. They show up, and they, they kill it, and you have gotten your money's worth. And you go home thinking, I just saw the greatest show of the tour. The audience may have felt that way, but the Stones are perfectionists. They always consider the first show a dress rehearsal, one final opportunity to work out the kinks. Keith blows out two guitars and is immensely frustrated. There's also a heated discussion over production designer Chip Monk's innovative new mirrored lighting design, which some feel improperly illuminates Mick, who is, after all, the very reason for the show. The band stay up until 4 a.m. making changes to the set, discussing which songs to drop, which to keep, and what order to play them in. So much for after parties. As Bill Wyman attests, they definitely put in the work. But this is the first tour I've ever come off stage night after night and just could not even sit and order a cup of tea or a beer or something. I just fell on the bed, didn't I? Just drained you right out, you know, it's amazing. The next morning, tour manager Peter Rudge reaches for the papers. He finds a three-column, bold-type headline, Stones fans battle police. The wire service has picked up the story and suddenly it's national news. The phone calls come flooding in. What the hell's going on up there, Peter? Geez, that's only Vancouver, and already the damn thing's out of control and on the front page. Garnering headlines had been the primary objective, but as far as Keith Richards was concerned, the papers had missed the point. There was something far more special going on inside the arena. The tour was off and running now. No telling what type of mayhem might ensue. There would be a lot of that. But to Keith, the music trumped all. Funnily enough, to the musicians, the most important thing is the show, which, I mean, isn't bullshit. I mean, anybody can say that, but fucking up, the band's playing better than ever. You know, the audiences keep getting bigger and better, and the shows keep getting bigger and better, and so why quit? You know, I mean, nobody's got the desire to quit, you know, because you're still getting the satisfaction out of it that you need to produce and create and keep going, you know. It's an almighty hassle, man, to keep this show on the road, you know, because... It's harder all the time. Yeah, too. you know, it's not... But, I mean, can't quit now. Stone's Touring Party is written and hosted by Jordan Runtalk, co-executive produced by Noel Brown and Jordan Runtalk, 
Edited and sound designed by Noel Brown and Michael Alder June. Original music composed and performed by Michael Alder June and Noel Brown, with additional instruments performed by Chris Suarez, Nick Johns Cooper, and Josh Thane. Vintage Rolling Stones audio, courtesy of the Robert Greenfield Archive at the Charles Deering McCormick Library of Special Collections in Northwestern University Libraries. Stones Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.